Welcome to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. Today's message is Resilience by Pastor Sean Wood. Let's come around God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Word is living and active and our prayer is that your Word would become living and active inside of each one of us. Holy Spirit, may our hearts be open and our spiritual ears be open. In Jesus' name as we come around your Word. Amen. This morning, if you've got your Bibles, would like to meet me in Luke chapter 4. Uh, if you're wondering what's the go with a stress ball, <laughs> you, you spend enough time sitting in proximity to Basil and you're going to want to squeeze something. <laughs> but a little bit more about the stress ball in a moment. But uh, most people will know last year happened to be the last Sunday of last year. But last year we started a series about the root of the righteous or about our inner life, which really supports our outer life. It's interesting that when Jesus came, Jesus came to speak to the heart. He came to change the heart, not merely just to dress up the outside. Sometimes we get that around the wrong way. And so uh, part of this series is about the fact that our, a strong outer life or a godly righteous life is supported by a strong inner root of righteousness. And, and if we have a look at some of the heroes of faith, both in the Bible and as well as in church history, we will see that often we have a look at what happens on the outside and and the wonderful things they accomplished for God in their lifetime, but we neglect if you pull the curtain back, there was an inner life that was cultivated. And so we want to know how can we cultivate that and what does that look like? And so we began last year with resolve. Uh, Can I tell you that 95% of the stress in your life comes from unmade decisions? I think. I'm not sure. (laughs) I'll get back to you. But uh, part of moving into the new year is to forget about New Year's resolutions, but to determine to live our life with resolve. And we looked at the life of Daniel and how he, by God's grace, he transformed the landscape of Babylon because he made a decision, I'm going to live for God. Before he got to Babylon, he said, I am not going to defile myself or allow myself to be defiled. And of course, last week we looked at kingdom characteristics or characteristics of kingdom citizens and we worked our way through the Beatitudes. Today I want to talk about resilience and that'll bring me to the stress ball. Uh, I've got three boys, so I need probably a box of these if, you, if anyone's got them. But uh, interesting thing I noticed, about, and thank you, Pastor Liz, I don't know what kind of prophetic message you were sending when you uh, passed this on, but uh, I noticed something when I was trying to explain the best way to understand the word resilience. Uh, I, I had a stress ball in my hand. I'm thinking, you know what? It doesn't matter how much pressure you apply to this stress ball or in which way you do it, it always returns back to its shape. That's the best way to understand resilience. The best way to understand resilience is it doesn't matter how much pressure is placed on you from the outside or around, you always withstand. The word resilience means to to withstand uh, challenges that come against us. And so uh, this morning I want to expose firstly the problem. Secondly, I want to move to how Jesus models what it looks like to withstand and what resilience looks like. And then last of all, how can we cultivate this in our very own life? And so thank you to the stress ball for its analogy. And I'll leave that there with you, Pastor Liz, in case, th- in case things get a little bit... <coughs> 
Let me tell you a story first of all. And Mark Patch, this is a fictional story and I apologise for everything I'm about to say. But, <laughs> but, uh, in advance. But, uh, let me tell you a story about two Australian diggers. Two Australian diggers named Wally and Bert that pull up into a military port in the United States. They're on leave. So they exit the boat and they think, you know what? A couple of Australian diggers on leave. What are we going to do? So these guys decide, let's go to the bar. And they get there and, you know, one beer turns into two beers, turns into 10 o'clock and the publican kicks them out on the street. Wally turns to Bert and he says, I don't know where we are and I don't know how to get back to the ship. And just as he says that, a four-star United States general walks down the street dressed in all of his garb, all of his medals. Wally turns to Bert and says, we'll ask this guy. So they come up to this guy and they say, excuse me, sir, we don't know how to get back to the ship. And he puffs his chest out and he says, do you know who I am? Bert turns to Wally and says, now we're in real trouble. We don't know where we are and this guy doesn't even know who he is. (laughs) And as funny as that sounds, I've actually just described our current culture. We are surrounded today, and this is creeping its way into the church, but we are surrounded today by people who don't know where they are, they don't know how to get back to the ship, and they don't even know who they are. And it's interesting how today uh, morality and truth and many other things have become what we call subjective or relative. It means, uh, anybody heard this phrase, you just do you. Uh, that is completely unbiblical. Nowhere did Jesus ever say, you just do you. Uh, whatever's true for you, you just do what's true for you. And, uh, and that's not really true for me. Anybody heard that? And uh, how did that work out in World War Two? You see, uh, I don't know if anybody can remember, but after World War Two, uh, for those that were alive, that's only, you know, two or three people here this morning. But after World War Two, something amazing happened. They round up all the Nazi generals that they could find and the leaders of the Nazi regime and they put them on trial at Nuremberg and they automatically struck a problem. The problem was they found that when they put these guys on trial, every one of them got up and said, we haven't broken any laws. And they were right. Because Hitler had systematically changed the laws in Germany. That's why we now have the United Nations. That's what subjective truth looks like. We live in a culture today that's all about subjective truth. But the Bible and Jesus brings objective truth, which means it brings a truth that is opposed on us. And so many people make truth claims today. And, and the sad thing is that many don't realise that Jesus came and the word of God has been given to us so that we know what shape it is that we are supposed to hold uh, in our current... The culture today is looking to the church for the answers that Wally and Bert couldn't find. We live in a culture today that is screaming out, who are we, where are we, Where's the ship? And we're going to look today at how Jesus models 
that for each one of us. When we look at truth, uh, I was reminded when I was thinking about this that Pontius Pilate asked Jesus one of the most haunting questions uh, that you could ask. Uh, standing in front of Jesus in John chapter 18, Pilate asks him, what is truth? What a great question. The problem is he didn't hang around long enough to hear the answer. He was looking at truth. And today, uh, it's interesting, uh, today we can actually... You can't, there are tests you can apply to truth. People say there's, there's no such thing as absolute truth. People would say there's no such thing as any kind of absolutes. We live in a society and culture today that says there's no such thing as any absolutes. And I appreciated Ravi Zacharias. Ravi Zacharias was given 20 minutes at a United Nations prayer breakfast to speak about absolutes. And he spent 18 minutes speaking about love, speaking about evil, speaking about justice and speaking about forgiveness. And then he asked in two minutes, he asked one question, where do we see in history all of those four absolutes coming together at the one time it was at the cross Jesus modelled all of those and so we do absolutely have absolutes but how can we know what truth is there's there's four major criteria uh, to tell us that we can test truth scripture has undergone vividly and avidly every one of these tests first one is authority uh, anybody who's studied at a university level will know that when you have to hand in a paper, uh, the professor or the lecturer doesn't want to know what you think. They want you to make an argument based on those that have an authority in the area. And so a truth claim has to come from a source of authority. Scripture comes from the highest form of authority that there is. All Scripture is God-breathed. So the first one is authority. The second one we find is coherence. And that means that all of the facts are consistent. There's a consistent and overarching explanation of all of the facts. We, it doesn't make logical sense. And here's a couple of things that don't kind of make a whole lot of sense. You see, uh, we teach evolution in our schools, but the interesting thing is that Charles Darwin, who wrote the book The Origin of Species, said, if you ever prove the complexity of the living cell, my whole theory falls apart. 1952, they cracked the human genome code. They didn't find a couple of bits of information. They found trillions of bits of information. Uh, I remember listening to the uh, testimony of a guy by the name of Fuzz Rana in the United States. He said, I came to Christ in a laboratory looking at the living cell through a microscope. He said, because I was convinced that this could not have been an accident. It doesn't make sense Evolution isn't coherent with all the facts. I I love what C.S. Lewis says. C.S. Lewis was probably the last century's greatest apologist. C.S. Lewis says that I believe in Christianity like I believe the sun has risen, not because I by it I can see everything, but because by it I see everything. Here's what C.S. Lewis is saying. Through the lens of Christianity, everything makes sense. When I look at the universe uh, through Scripture and through Christ, Everything makes sense. So we know it's authoritative. We know it's coherent. The last one's the really good one. We know that it's consistent. Uh, For those who don't know, I used to drive taxis. I had three of my own taxis. I drove taxis for six years. And and I used to encourage some of the other taxi drivers and just let them know that to be a good liar, you have to have a good memory. In other words, if you're going to tell the same story to ten different people, it needs to be consistent. And we see all of these line up 
all of the facts that flow one from another, and we see that here. This is what I love about the Bible. Uh, the Bible is made up of 66 books, yes, but it tells the one story. It's not telling 66 individual stories. All of the facts line up together, and the last one's the most important. The last one is a truth claim corresponds to its object. Here's what I mean by that. If I walked in here one morning and I said to you, uh, Parliament House of Australia is in Darwin, Every one of you would say, hogwash, right? Everybody knows that claim doesn't correspond with the object. Parliament House is in Canberra. What I love about the truth that we find in Scripture is it corresponds to its object, and we and God are the object. Resilience is really important because we live in a culture that likes to shape us. and to mould us, and to pressure us. And we are going to understand and undergo those moments and the seasons in our lives when we feel pressured and when we undergo challenges. And so what does resilience look like? How did Jesus model resilience? And then we'll ask the last question, how can I cultivate that in my life? If you've got your Bibles and you've made your way to Luke chapter 4, There's a a wonderful passage which speaks about the temptation of Jesus Christ or the testing. Uh, The word for temptation here or tempt is probably better described as test. And often uh, when we come to this passage of scripture, we often think that this is Jesus having a memory verse battle with the devil. That's not what's going on here. And before we go any further, I want to make it clear that one who stands and withstands and one who can stand in resilience is not just a mere matter of building up memory verses in your mind. Because I want to be categorically clear, the enemy will beat you at a memory verse battle every time. We have an enemy that operates on 95% truth. He just, as we will see before we finish, he distorts it. Sounds right, looks right, something's off. And we'll, we'll see that in a moment. And we will actually see that Jesus is doing far more here than merely peeling off memory verses. The Pharisees in the first century could memorize the first five chapters of the Bible. They had to have these scrolls on their head, which was called a phylactery. And the bigger your phylactery, the more scripture you had memorized and taken in. And what good did that do them? They missed Christ. Something very powerful happens through this process. Verse 1, it says, in Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. And I don't want to go any further before I unpack what that verse there is saying to us. We live in a time we will not withstand, we will not be able to undergo the Christian life without the presence and the power and the help of the Holy Spirit. This year we have determined to ask the question and answer the question, what does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? And in answering that question, when I was reading and meditating on this, I was thinking, what does that mean? Here's some questions we're going to answer this year. What does the Bible say about who the Holy Spirit is? Who is the Holy Spirit? Uh, What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? Is that available to me? If it is available to me, how can I step into that and walk into that? 
the good news is that it's a really wonderful journey that we're going to go on because of what happens on the other side of the wilderness. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Uh, led is an okay word. Uh, in the Greek, you would be better to use a word like compelled or seized by the Holy Spirit. This was not an accidental, hey, let's go this way. The Holy Spirit has compelled Jesus to go into the wilderness. The enemy didn't take him there. You do the Christian life for any length of time and you will know wilderness experiences when God feels sometimes a million miles away, when, when challenges and pressures come on you. And here what we read with Jesus, have a look at what happens if this doesn't happen even in our own lives. And he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness for 40 days being tempted or tested by the devil. Now, can I be clear, your character is not forged or formed under pressure. It is revealed. It's then we get to see what that inner root is like. When the wind blows, we will see whether the tree will stand. For 40 days, being tempted by the devil, he ate nothing during those 40 days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Often when we read passages like this, we often say, well, Jesus was the son of God. It's no accident that the genealogy is immediately before this passage. Because what Luke wants us to know is he's God, absolutely, but he's also fully man. And he suffered as we suffer. He was hungry like we get hungry. He was tired like we... 40 minutes, not 40 days, 40 minutes and my boys are hungry. (laughs) This is my boys after 40 minutes. This is not 40, 40 days. You've raised boys, Lynn, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But the enemy always comes when you are at your weakest. When you are at your weakest, when you are seemingly at your most vulnerable, uh, notice that he didn't come on day two or day three or day four. Notice that he comes after 40 days. Notice that he comes to Jesus when everything inside of Jesus is saying, I'm hungry and I'm tired and I'm weary. And the enemy comes alongside and says... If you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Uh, That word, if there, is not a doubting that Jesus is the son of God. It would read better in the Greek if you said, since you are the son of God. Since you are the son of God, why don't you just turn these stones into bread? Why don't you just give yourself something to eat? Why don't you just... You know, why don't you just indulge yourself? You're the son of God. Since you are the son of God, you deserve this, right? And I love Jesus' answer, of course. Uh, Man shall not live by bread alone, but every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, That those who know this verse. And I love that because here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not having a memory verse battle. What Jesus is telling the enemy and what he's declaring here is, I have founded and based my life on God's word. That is the ultimate truth. I will not be shaped, pushed, led, pulled aside in any direction because I've already made up my mind that I am going to let my life be conducted according to God's truth. We live in a culture today that wants to tell you some weird and wonderful things concerning what truth is. They want to tell you that life doesn't begin until you come out of the womb. How horrendous is that? I have another grandson coming in a few weeks and I've had a look at all the ultrasounds. I get excited. You can't tell me life starts outside of the womb. 
society would like to tell you that when you get old and when you're infirm and when you're sick, it's better if you just take a few pills and exit the planet because you're becoming a burden on society. We like to dress it up and call it all nice words. We must value life. We must treasure, treasure our elderly people for what they have given us. Jesus says, I I will not, and I love this because here's what Jesus is saying. I will not be ruled by my appetites. I will not be ruled by my desires. I will be ruled by God's word. Thank you, Jesus. It doesn't stop there. How many people know the enemy doesn't seem to get no for an answer? Uh, The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. Moving on. And the devil took him and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And here's now the enemy is going to allow Jesus the possibility of taking a shortcut. You came to get all this back. You came to reclaim. You came to redeem. I'll give it all to you. You can, you can avoid the cross and take the shortcut to get to where you want. Here's how it sounds like. Uh, it showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I will give it to whom I will. If you will then worship me, it will be yours. The enemy wants your worship. For those that were here through the Revelation series, the book of Revelation is all about worship. Uh, If you were a church uh, in the time that Revelation was written, you would have been under pressure to to exalt the emperor, to give all of the imperial worship to him. And if you didn't, it could cost you your life. We live in a time today. It's interesting how nothing changes. Nothing's new under the sun. It looks different, but everybody wants you to worship anything and everything else. And if I could sum up the word worship in one easy word to help us to understand it, it would be the word attention. The enemy, if the enemy can't get you to sin, he'll get you busy. He'll get you distracted. He'll get you more focused on work. And I don't know if anybody's been in a season where you just think to yourself, if I just get all this work done over the next two or three weeks, then, it, then my plate will be clear. How many people know that by the time you've just about finished that, the devil's filled your plate again? But he wants your attention. Attention on all sorts of weird and wonderful things. I love the reply that Jesus brings Uh, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But I like this last one. This last one is going to bring it home a little bit more now. He took him to Jerusalem, and he set him on the pinnacle of the temple. For those that have read Matthew's account, you'll notice that this is actually around the other way. The order does not matter, uh, but what happens here is really important. He took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written... Hang on a second. Now the enemy's saying it is written. When Jesus says it is written, it's in the present tense, which means Jesus is declaring... To the enemy, it has been written, it remains unchanged and written. That's what he's saying. The enemy is now using scripture. 
and he uses a verse exactly how it is worded. If you were to find this verse in the Psalms, you would find it worded exactly like this. He quotes the verse exactly, but he horrendously distorts the meaning. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And with much sadness, we see this today amongst Christ's body. Where God's word is taken... And its meaning is distorted. You see, what the enemy's doing here is he's taking God's word to use and to serve his own purposes. And the tragedy is that still happens today. C.H. Spurgeon said wonderfully, C.H. Spurgeon said wonderfully, that the discerning of spirits is not the ability to discern between what is good and evil. Just about everybody in this room would be able to answer that. C.H. Spurgeon said, the gift to be able to distinguish between the spirits is the gift to be able to distinguish from what is right, from what is almost right. Almost true is a lie. And... We clearly see here the greatest danger we have is when we try to shape God and shape his word instead of allowing his word to shape us. What Jesus is saying here when he says it is written, he says God's word has been spoken. It has not changed. It shapes me, it shapes my life, it determines my worship, it determines the place that I will stand. Jesus answers, and Jesus answered him, it is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The sad thing is, And the reason resilience is so important is many Christians enter the wilderness and never come out the other side. Often we can find ourselves wandering around in the wilderness but never really making any progress. Uh, We always use the analogy of the Israelites and in Exodus. That was was at best a 40-day trip that took them 40 years wandering around and around the mountain. They never seemed to get to the other side. And my heart is that each of us will reach the other side because read what happens to Jesus when he leaves the wilderness. We started this process with, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. He enters the wilderness full of the Holy Spirit. Let's have a listen to what verse uh, 14 says. And Jesus returned in the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, the reason this is so important is the enemy is robbing believers and the church of their power because we never make it to the other side of the wilderness. The word full and the word power are deliberately two different words that Luke uses. 
And what we read from here is Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit to Galilee and the sick are healed. The dead become raised. He preaches and people say, we've never heard preaching like this. He speaks like one who's got authority. Something happened to Jesus in the wilderness. Question we must ask ourselves, how can I cultivate that in my life? How can I stop letting the enemy push me, shape me, mould me, rob me of my victory? How can I move to a place where I can cultivate that? How can I cultivate this in my life so that when I find myself under pressure, my character that will be revealed is that I will withstand? Many people know that every now and again uh, I do a little bit of fly fishing. And when I was in Tasmania, we used to fish a lake called Weston's Lake. Uh, Reuben knows where that is. It's an exhausting walk. It's four and a half k's up and four k's into the lake. Weston's Lake is right next to a lake called Lucy Long, and in between is a brilliant place to camp. And it's a brilliant place to camp because uh, right on this soft place is also this enormous pencil pine tree. And... For those who don't know, pencil pine trees are some of the slowest growing trees you'll find. And this particular pencil pine tree looks like two trees, but it got hit by lightning and split. And it kept growing to the point now. And we don't measure the growth of pencil pines in decades. We measure their growth in centuries. And this particular pencil pine tree has been there for centuries. And if you have a look at it from a distance, you think, man, this tree's had a hard life. (laughs) And it has. I mean, it's been hit by lightning, a split. Uh, From the bottom, it grows out and then up and then it comes back. It's, But it has withstood. If you can withstand Tasmanian winters, (laughs) ladies and gentlemen, you are resilient. But that tree... Uh, When I was thinking about this, I was thinking, you know what? God desires us all to be like that pencil pine tree. It doesn't matter what the weather outside happens. It doesn't matter how hard the wind blows. It doesn't matter what gets thrown at you. You will keep on standing. I want to tell you today how it is that you can cultivate that in your life. Uh, In the book of Psalms, the very first Psalm, uh, David writes, Blessed is the man, and uh, for those that are reading, the word man there, uh, there should be a footnote. It speaks about blessed is the godly person. Blessed is the godly person who, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Before I go any further, I want to ask you today, where do you walk, where do you stand, and where do you sit? There are places godly people don't walk. There are places godly people don't stand. There are godly places, there are places godly people don't sit. Excuse me. But, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. Everything we've just seen Jesus do, often we can think, well, that was Jesus. That's out of reach for me. I can't do that. It would take me, it'll take me all of my life to be able to cultivate that. I want to tell you, I want to encourage you today. You can begin cultivating 
that kind of resilience in your life right now, today. You can leave here today and it's not some deep, mystical, spiritual super secret. It's really, really simple. The psalmist says that he who delights in the law of the Lord and on his law meditates day and night. Have a listen to the description. He is like a tree. He's like a tree that is planted by streams of water that yield their fruit in season and its leaf does not Our heart here, uh, our heart here as a leadership is this is our prayer, this is our desire, this is what we lay before for every person that comes to the rock. We want to bless you. We want the, we want the Holy Spirit to plant you like this tree. But if we go back, these trees are trees that delight in the law of the Lord and meditate. What does that mean? What does it mean to meditate? What did David mean? Because that word meditate is very powerful, but it's also very simple. I'm going to give you four outlines in a moment of how you can begin to apply this in your life. But what does meditate mean? What did David mean when he wrote the word meditate? Because often when we think of the word meditation, we think of the Eastern form of meditation. And that philosophy is all about emptying yourself. You have to go through a whole lot of processes and chant this and rub that and drift that and next thing you know, you're going to empty yourself of all of this. Biblical meditation is the opposite. It's about filling yourself. The word meditate here means to to chew the cud for the dairy farmers amongst us. It means to keep chewing on the word. It means to mutter. I give you permission today to talk to yourself. If, like Bill, you begin to answer yourself, <laughs> we pray here on Sundays too, so don't, don't ever forget that. But the word meditate just means to keep chewing over the word of God, just to keep thinking. You would be surprised what the Holy Spirit does when you give the word of God that time and that place. You might use devotionals as an aid. I would say absolutely use devotionals, use whatever it is that would allow you to chew on God's word, to to, to suck all the nutrients out of it. Uh, We can read the word of God and forget about it and it has no bearing in our lives. I remember the, the testimony of a guy called Larry Taunton. Larry Taunton used to debate Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens was one of last century's most antagonistic atheists, but he died of lung cancer. But before he died, they did a journey across America in a car uh, to do a series of debates, and they went through the Gospel of John. And what was amazing was they went over and over and over and over and over the Gospel of John. It had no effect on Christopher Hitchens. When you meditate on it, when you chew on it, when you think about it, and and for those that are involved in sermon prep, I give them the same advice and the same outlines. And these four things, if if you're taking notes, write these four things down. But this is the process that I use. You can apply this in your daily life and you can apply it to other things as well. But the first one is think yourself empty. Grab hold of a passage of scripture. It doesn't have to be a whole chapter. It doesn't have to be a whole book. And just think about it. Let's just take one verse that we read in Luke chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. Start to think about that. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? How can I be full of the Holy Spirit? Why did Jesus, the Son of God, need to be full of the Holy Spirit? 
and you begin chewing over the word. So you think yourself empty, you read yourself full. Read commentaries, read devotionals, pour into other people, read about that verse. What What does such and such say about this verse? Maybe you're going through a devotional and you read the verse, read the verses and the passage around it and then read more about what's going in. So you you think yourself empty, you read yourself full, you write yourself clear. And for those, we might call it, that was Jesus, I'm nearly finished, we, we might call that journaling. Um, the, for some in, uh, for some that do sermon prep, they write a whole transcript. John Piper writes 10 to 15 pages of a transcript, writes every word out and never uses it behind the pulpit. He just writes all his thoughts out. And the last one is, pray yourself hot. Pray yourself hot. P R A Y. Think yourself empty, read yourself full, write yourself clear, pray yourself hot. Pray that, okay, Lord, this is what it means. What does it mean to be full of the Holy Spirit? I want to be full of the Holy Spirit. Pray yourself, pray, <laughs> fill me, Holy Spirit. Maybe that's what it looks like. Have a look at what God will do internally. Maybe switch off social media. Maybe turn the telly off. You'll be amazed if you just decide I'm going to give God half an hour of my attention. I'm just, you know, instead of watching television, I'm just going to give God half an hour of my attention. You'll be amazed what God could do. This doesn't have to be hours upon hours upon hours. I loved Wigglesworth's answer. Uh, a lady comes up to Smith Wigglesworth at one point. Most of us here have heard about Smith Wigglesworth. He learned to read on the Bible. His wife, Polly, taught him to read on the Bible. But a lady comes up and says, how many hours do you spend in prayer and reading the Word? And he says, oh, he says, I never spend any more than about 20 minutes reading the Word and praying. And she goes, oh. He says, but I never go 20 minutes without reading the Word and praying. This isn't three hours. Just find 20 minutes in the morning. Before the kids get up and the children on their Wheaties, just find a place. And you'll become like this tree. And we all need... I, I know I need this. Because the winds of the world are never going to stop blowing. Let's pray. Father, I pray for every one of us in this room. We're going on a journey this year through the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit, but I pray, fill us with the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, we need you. I pray, Father, that your truth would be a cemented foundation in every one of our hearts and every one of our lives. May your truth shape us and use us, I pray, to shape the world according to your truth. I pray for every person in this room today that as they begin to open your word that they will have the same testimony as the two men on the road to Emmaus. Did our hearts not burn within us as he opened the scriptures? I pray that for each and every one of us in the glorious name of Jesus.
Amen. Thanks for listening to the Rock Christian Church Podcast. To be notified when the next episode is available, subscribe on our website at therock.org.au. You can also connect with us on Facebook at The Rock Christian Church. We hope you have been blessed today and we look forward to you joining us for our next episode. Thank you.